Our scripture reading for, for today is Daniel 2, 20 through 23 from the ESV. Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness, and the light dwells with him. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise. For you have given me wisdom and might, and have now made known to me what we asked of you. For you have made known to us the king's matter. This is the word of God. Good afternoon, New Hope. Thanks, Nate, for reading God's word to us, and thank you, Shailen, for praying for our youth. For everyone else who's taken part in this in this uh, worship gathering so far, thank you, Dan, for those announcements, and and to our worship team for leading us in worship week to week. Thank you, guys, and and thank you to the rest of you for gathering to encourage one another to worship God together. When when we sing together, we're actually encouraging one another to sing. When we sing, whether you, I don't know if you're aware of this, when we gather as the church, we're not just singing to God; we're actually singing to one another what Colossians tells us, tells us that, and Ephesians tells us, tells us that when we gather to sing, we're actually reminding one another of truth that we really need to hear. And so you're serving one another when you sing the lyrics that are up here on the screen. When we sing of God's amazing grace, when we sing of Christ's presence in us by his spirit, when we sing of the cross, we're actually preaching the gospel to one another. So thank you for preaching the gospel to me as I stood here and worshiped with you. I think it's safe to say that everyone hates bad dreams. Nightmares are awful. Can you remember the last nightmare you ever had? Kids, can you remember the last nightmare you experienced? Some of us, we have terrible dreams, and then when we wake up, we can't remember what they were. And maybe it's better that way. I don't know. I know that often happens to my kids, and I'm like that sometimes too. I was really troubled. I wake up, and I don't even know what it was. And so I just go back to sleep. Sad thing is, as you get older, nightmares don't necessarily just go away. They just change. They just look different. You, you have bad dreams about different stuff. In my case, and maybe for some of you, you have dreams like this. You're, you're wandering through your high school corridors, looking for your locker. I have this dream repeatedly. I'm looking for my locker, and I can't find it. And It's hours and hours, and I can't find it. Or I'm wandering through the corridors of my high school looking for that classroom where I'm supposed to be taking this math class, this math test, which I didn't study for. And I'm rushing to get to the class to take the test. I can't find the class. More recently, it manifested itself this way. I was in a convenience store parking lot in the inner city somewhere looking for my car, and I couldn't find it. So I'm wandering around in the dark looking for my car hitting the alarm button so that I can find my car and I can't find it. And finally I realize I think my car's been stolen. And then someone else comes along and tries to help me find my car. So they're helping me along and all of a sudden they disappear. And I'm trying to find them and I can't find them. My nightmares all have to do with like searching for something. I don't know why. All of you uh, amateur psychologists out there or professional psychologists can, uh, can analyze that. Tell me what it all means. I'm always looking for something in these dreams and it takes me forever and I never find it. What's worse than a nightmare, though, I believe, is when you're going through a horrible time, deep trouble, and you wish it were a bad dream, but it's not. And you wish you could just wake yourself up out of it. You wish that one day you could just open your eyes and it'd all be gone, but instead you wake up day to day and the trouble's still there. The problem hasn't disappeared. 
That's something like what Daniel is experiencing here in Daniel chapter 2. He has been in Babylon now for a few years. And he's there because his city, Jerusalem, was invaded, laid siege to. He was sent away, abducted, and taken away into exile into this foreign land. Now it's been several years and he's still there. It's like a nightmare that won't end. He wants to be back with his family, no doubt. He wants to be back in his home country, no doubt. And yet, day by day goes by and he realizes, this is reality for me now. I'm here with no prospect of ever returning. It's a nightmare. And yet, what gets him through is the fact that in the midst of that experience, he knows that God is with him, powerfully present with him through it all. In fact, God is with him in a way that he's able to redeem. God redeems each experience and shows Daniel that he means it for his good, for the good of his people. While Daniel's in exile, he faces several life-threatening situations, one after the other. And each one is, is, each one is horrifying, and yet each one is also really instructive for us. It teaches us a great deal. Each one of these challenges that Daniel faces shows us a little bit more of what it looks like to live as God's people in exile. What does it look like for us to live as God's people in exile? That's what Daniel shows us. And whether you're aware of this or not, if you are a Christian, a follower of Christ, then you are an exile. You're a foreigner because this is not your final home, where you are right now. The book of Hebrews calls us as Christians foreigners and strangers. <laughs> the Apostle Paul tells us that our citizenship is in heaven, not here. Our citizenship is in heaven. And from heaven we await our Savior who will one day take us to be with him. So Daniel shows us how to live as foreigners in the place where we live right now, just as he lived as a foreigner in the Empire of Babylon. He shows us, this book does, how to, how to seek the good of the world that we're in, all the while not being consumed by the world we are in. You see, the book of Daniel shows us that we will be the most good to this world when we're not consumed by it. This week and next week, the passages that we're looking at all revolve around a dream. King Nebuchadnezzar's dream. He, he saw it as a bad dream. And in a sense, it was a bad dream, kind of a nightmare for him. But we'll see next week what that dream meant as Dan Lisa will preach to us about the content and the meaning of that dream. But this is a longer chapter, and so we're just looking at the first part today. And what we want to see today in verses 1 through 30 is a contrast, a contrast between these three very different characters, three very different characters. The first one is a troubled dictator. The second one is an infinite God. And the third one is a humble servant. A troubled dictator, an infinite God, and a humble servant. So as we look at each of these three, I invite you to pray with me and ask for God's help. Lord, you know where each of us is in life as we come into this place this morning. You're aware of what nightmares some of us might be living through right now. You're, you're aware of the worries that might be keeping us awake at night, the troubles that might be unsettling us. And so we ask that you'd speak to us in the midst of all that worry and all that trouble. Speak peace to us in Christ Jesus. Lord, we ask that through this account, you would amaze us by how big you are, how powerful you are, and how good you are. And we ask that through this story, you would teach us how to live as your people right here and right now. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. So the first thing we see in the story is a very troubled dictator. I, I want to invite you to read from uh, verse 1 through verse 16 with me. If you have a Bible, it's Daniel chapter 1, I mean Daniel chapter 2, verse 1. If you don't have a Bible, the verses are up there on the screen behind me. 
It says here, in the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. <clears throat> his spirit was troubled, and his sleep left him. And then the king commanded that the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans be summoned to tell the king his dreams. So they came in and stood before the king. And the king said to them, I had a dream, and my spirit is troubled to know the dream. Then the Chaldeans said in the, to the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream, and, and we will show the interpretation. The king answered and said to the Chaldeans, The word for me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you shall be torn limb from limb, and your houses shall be laid in ruins. <clears throat> but if you show the dream and its interpretation, you shall receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. Therefore, show me the dream and its interpretation. They answered a second time and said, let the king tell his servants the dream and, and we'll show its interpretation. The king answered and said, I know with certainty that you are trying to gain time because you see that the word from me is firm. If you do not make the dream known to me, there is but one sentence for you. You have agreed to speak lying and corrupt words before me till the times change. Therefore, tell me the dream, and I shall know that you can show me its interpretation. The Chaldeans answered the king and said, There's not a man on earth who can meet the king's demand. For no great and powerful king has asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or Chaldean. The thing that the king asks is difficult, and, and no one can show it to the king except the gods, whose dwelling is not with flesh. Because of this, the king was very angry and furious, and he commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be destroyed. So the decree went out, and the wise men were about to be killed, and they sought Daniel and his companions to kill them. Then Daniel replied with prudence and discretion to Arioch, the captain of the king of the guard, who had gone out to kill the wise men of Babylon. He declared to Arioch, the king's captain, Why is the decree of the king so urgent? And then Arioch made the matter known to Daniel. And Daniel went in and requested the king to appoint him a time that he might show the interpretation to the king. What we see here is a ruler who's come unhinged. He's a powerful leader, but he feels powerless. And because he feels powerless, he's flexing his muscles all the more. He's trying to use whatever power he can to take control of the situation that he feels helpless in. Nebuchadnezzar was the most powerful man in the world at this time, a king who had taken over the, em the empires of other kings. He's probably about 30 years old here. Picture that. I, I, I find it really helpful, especially, especially when we go through the book of Daniel, to remember the relative age of these folks. Daniel, who we're going to look at in a little while, was probably um, high school age, maybe early college age. Right? High school to college age. Nebuchadnezzar is just a little bit older. He's about 30. And yet he's the most powerful man in the world. And his kingdom is aggressively expanding. Imagine a 30-year-old man with all this power. How would you respond if you had the power to take life and grant life? If you could have whatever you wanted, all you had to do was demand it. Speak the words and it would, someone would have to bring it to you. How would that corrupt your mind? Think about people who um, become celebrities early in life. Maybe they're young, they become famous. Maybe they're internet famous. And they start to see some real money and they start to see some real attention. And what happens? It, it invariably tends to corrupt their view of reality. 
they start to feel as if they're little gods. That's to be expected. When no one's around to challenge you, and no one's around to tell you that you're wrong, what happens? You start to assume you're always right, and you start to force your will on other people. Everything you want, you expect to get it. Entitlement to the highest degree. That's what we see in the king. He's a spoiled young man, an entitled young man. He's also a very powerful young man, and yet at this point in life, he feels desperate. He's used to being treated like a god, and the fact is that within that culture, a king like Nebuchadnezzar would have been considered a god. Kings like this were worshipped in this culture. They were considered sons of God, deity. No wonder he was so entitled. He wasn't just used to being obeyed. He was used to being praised and worshipped. He's gotten everything he wanted, and yet at this point, he doesn't have peace. He does not have peace of mind. He can't even sleep at night because these troubling dreams are, are causing anxiety. These troubling dreams are, are taking away his ability to even rest. Does that sound familiar to any of you? Any of you ever lived through something like that? Maybe it's not the dreams you're having that are keeping you awake, but it's the worries of life, concerns about tomorrow, financial concerns, relationship concerns, concerns about your own family, about your kids, about the people you love. They rob you of your sleep. You're filled with anxiety. Next thing you know, you're an insomniac. You relate to that? King Nebuchadnezzar wants to know what these dreams mean. He feels like that's the key to peace for me. If I find out what they mean, then I can finally rest. Because he knows, he must know, that these dreams have some kind of meaning. They're not arbitrary. He, he instinctively knows that, that something is being communicated to him through these dreams. And he's right. God, the true God, is in fact communicating to him. I believe that what's happening to Nebuchadnezzar here is he's starting to see that he is not in control after all. He's starting to see that he is not God. And that's terribly unsettling for a guy like him. So he starts making these outlandish demands. He says, you need to tell me the dream that I dreamt and tell me what it means. Totally unreasonable. His, his servants, these wise men, these enchanters, these magicians, they're all trying to speak reason to him. They're like, well, if you tell us the meaning of the dream, we'll, we'll be happy to interpret it for you. We've got plenty of books. We can look up, you know, in the index and find out what each of these things mean. He says, no, 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 I'm not giving you any details at all. In fact, he's suspicious of them. It's interesting, isn't it, how, how very powerful people, the more powerful they become and the more corrupted they are by their power, can start to become very paranoid and suspicious of others. And that's what's happening here. It's like he's saying, no, 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 don't try to pull one over on me. You're just stalling for time. You're lying to me. You're against me. Everyone becomes an enemy to him in his own warped perspective. And so he does what he knows gets the best results. How do you coax someone into doing what you want? You threaten to kill them and their entire families. That's Nebuchadnezzar's strategy for making friends and influencing people. He says, I'll kill you and everyone you love. He's totally unhinged. That what we see in, in, in this desperate, troubled dictator is a combination of insecurity and hostility. You know any powerful leaders like that? Insecurity and hostility. And yet, in all of this, God himself is breaking into the darkness of Nebuchadnezzar's life. And he's about to bring some clarity to him. Some much-needed clarity. So that's the troubled dictator we see at the beginning of this section. And then the very next section, we see a second character. An infinite God. An infinite God. Look at verse 17. Let's read this together. Then Daniel went to his house. This is after Daniel has just heard. Because, by the way, let me just pause for a second here. When, when, 
Nebuchadnezzar threatens to kill all of the wise men, all of the enchanters, all of the magicians. That includes Daniel, right? He's one of them. He's just been trained and placed into that position. This means Daniel and his three comrades are all in danger of death. Verse 17. Then Daniel went to his house and made the matter known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his companions, and told them to seek mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery, so that Daniel and his companions might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. And then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night. Then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. And Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness, and the light dwells with him. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise. For you have given me wisdom and might, and have now made known to me what we ask of you. For you have made known to us the king's matter. What does Daniel do when he hears about the threat upon his life? He hears about what's going on in the palace. The king has lost it. The king has threatened everybody. He says, let's inquire of the God of heaven. This, this little god, Nebuchadnezzar, is throwing a tantrum. He's flipping out. Let's inquire of the true God. Let, let's approach the true God of heaven. And what does God do? God reveals the mystery to Daniel. He reveals it all. And Daniel's response is to bless him. That means to praise him. To bless God means to speak well of God. It means to say wonderful and true things about God. That's what bless him means. And what does Daniel say about God? He outlines some of the amazing attributes of this God. Some of our, our, our youth group members were, were present at a a youth institute of theology recently over in Queens where they were studying together with other youth groups the attributes of God. And I hope it was instructive. I hope it was helpful. One of the things that Daniel 2 reminds me of is that when I come to, to contact with the attributes of God, when someone tells me or I find out more about who God is, it's supposed to drive me to praise him and worship him. So these facts about God, his holiness, his might, his, his power, his... his uh, his righteousness, his goodness. Those aren't just facts that I'm meant to take into my mind and just file away. They're meant to drive me to worship him, and that's what Daniel does here. He worships God because God is the one who changes times and seasons. What's he saying? He's saying, Lord, we're going through a really awful season right now. We're under the authority of a ruler who has uh, no morals, no sense of propriety. He is an utterly unrighteous man. Yet Daniel says, you're the one who brings us into these seasons and out of these seasons. Praise be to you. He removes kings and sets up kings. You're the one, Lord, who can give wisdom. God is the giver of wisdom. You see, this troubled dictator... He was shouting in the face of his wise men saying, tell me what this dream means. And they didn't have the wisdom to respond. He could shout at them and threaten them as much as he wanted to, but he was not able to give them the wisdom they needed to decipher the dream. But this God, the God of heaven, he gives wisdom as a gift. He illumines our minds. He reveals deep and hidden things because he knows what's in the darkness. You see, and he goes on to describe this majestic God who is so, so unlike this unhinged dictator. There, there, there's, we should pause and just think why this would be so important for the people of Israel to hear. For the Hebrews who were currently in bondage, in exile, in Babylon. It was so important 
for God to remind them about who he is. And that's why Daniel was written primarily to remind God's people, listen, your future and your well-being is not in the hands of this unhinged madman of a king. Your future and well-being is not in the hands of whatever leader you find yourself under. This man is not God. Nebuchadnezzar was known to be courageous. He was known to be very, very strong-willed. And he was also known to be really, really smart. I'm painting him kind of negatively as this madman. That's the way he's coming off in this chapter. But the fact is, he's a very competent guy, it seems. And yet God says, ultimately, your well-being is not in his hands. You have a true God who draws near to you, who is with you, and who loves you and will never forsake you. This man is not God. Whoever you find yourself under the authority of in this world, they are not God. I am. This is what Yahweh is reminding his people of. There's a king who is greater than the greatest king on earth. Nebuchadnezzar might be some kind of little g God over his little kingdom that's growing day by day, but there's a God in heaven, the king of kings, whose empire engulfs everything that you can see and can't see. You see, if Nebuchadnezzar is a little g God, then he's a pretty limited, frustrated, sad little God. But this God, the God of Daniel, and the God of all of those who have trusted in Jesus Christ, he's infinite in every way. See, this was a word that was needed by the people of Israel, the people of Judah in in that day, but this is a word that we need too. If you find yourself under the authority of unjust, unrighteous leadership at the government level, in your place of employment, in school, if you find yourself under the authority of people that that are immoral and can't be trusted and, and they're not fair, they're unjust, even in your own home, then this is a word for you as well. Your future and well-being is not in their hands. There is a God who sits above them, who is caring for you, who loves you, and will never leave you or forsake you. So we've got a troubled dictator, and we've got an infinite God here. Such a contrast. Then there's a third contrast as well. Number three, a humble servant. A humble servant. Daniel... If you remember from last week, a few years earlier, he had to show a lot of moral courage in a a very different kind of situation. And he was able to do that. God helped him to be courageous and to be faithful. And you would think, oh, well, Daniel succeeded. He, He represented God well. He deserves to kind of have an easy life now, and he doesn't. In fact, he faces more challenges, each one worse than the previous one. Daniel, once again, is living in the midst of a nightmare here. Like I said before, just being abducted and taken off into a foreign land is a nightmare enough. But now, his life is being threatened. He might die just because this king is upset. Irrationally. So we said, you know, the ruler is troubled. Nebuchadnezzar was, but Daniel must have been troubled here too, you know? There must have been some worry. I wouldn't blame him for losing sleep over this either. But rather than erupt in frustrated anger, what does Daniel do? It's so instructive. What does Daniel do in the midst of all this? Two things. He gathers his friends and he prays. It's so simple, but it's so incredible. He gathers his community together and he says, let's pray to God for mercy and wisdom. Let's ask for help. So utterly different from the ruler, from Nebuchadnezzar's response to trouble. He's driven to community and to prayer. And and I think that reveals for us something about Daniel's heart. It reveals to us that he viewed himself as a humble servant. A humble servant. How do you respond to trouble? What's your first instinct when trouble 
just heavy problems start to descend on you. Some of us, maybe you've been taught that the last thing you should do as a last resort is go seek some help. Maybe pray about it, but before you do any of that, try to fix this problem on your own. After all, show some strength. Show some inner fortitude. You're smart, you're able, come on. Fix the problem. Some of you may have been taught early in life to not share your problems with others. It's shameful to do that. It's a sign of weakness. More than that, it's shameful because you're, especially if you're going to discuss with others your sin, you're going to talk to them about the, the struggles that you're encountering, your temptations, your fears. No, keep that all bottled up. If you can't fix it, pray. But don't talk to anyone else about it. And Daniel, this wise man, is wise enough to see that that's utter foolishness. The only thing that keeps us from, from sharing our problems with others and, and the only thing that keeps us from going to community and to prayer is our own pride and sense of self-sufficiency. Fear of how we'll be responded to. But Daniel's wise enough to know that the best way is to go to community and prayer. And so that's what he does. And God supplies the answer. And, and what does Daniel do? It's so interesting to, to follow Daniel's train of thought here, what he does at each step. First step, he says, I'm going to go pray, and I'm going to pray with my community that God's given me. Because I'm in exile, right? I'm surrounded by people who are opposed to me. I'm surrounded by people who don't worship my God. So I need to get together with the people who do worship my God, who know me and him, and let's pray together. And then what does he do after that? After God gives him the answer to the question he's asking, he immediately worships. He worships. There's this spirit of, of adoration that we see in him, and he's worshiping from this place of gratitude. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord, for doing what no one else could do. And then look at verse 24. We'll read to the end of the story here. Then Daniel, therefore, Daniel went into Arioch, whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. I always wonder how Arioch felt about this, by the way, just as an aside. I often wonder, because Arioch probably knows that the king is like, he's tripping, right? The king is, is, has lost it. He's just going to take out all these families. Poor Arioch has to be the man to go and do it. I'm guessing, he, I'm hoping he feels conflicted about that. But he realizes there's no other way. Either I take out all these wise men and their families, or I'm going to be taken out along with my family, and then someone else is going to do what I was supposed to do. What a dilemma. What an ethical conundrum. In any case, Ariak was about to feel some relief, I believe. Because Daniel goes to him, and what does he say? He went in and said thus to him, Do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Bring me in before the king, and I will show the king the interpretation. Wow. Now everyone's just hoping he can really carry through on this huge promise. It says, Then Ariad brought in Daniel before the king in haste and said thus to him, I have found among the exiles from Judah a man who will make known to the king the interpretation. The king declared to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, are you able to make known to me the dream that I have seen and its interpretation? And Daniel answered the king and said, no wise men, enchanters, magicians, or astrologers can show to the king the mystery that the king has asked. <laughs> no one can do it. But listen, verse 28, but there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he has made known to the king Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. Your dream and the visions of your head as you lay in bed are these. To you, O king, as you lay in bed came thoughts of what would be after this. He's saying there's visions about the future. And he who reveals mysteries made known to you what is to be. But as for me, this mystery has been revealed to me not because of any wisdom that I have, 
more than all the living, but in order that the interpretation may be made known to the king and that you may, be, and that you may know the thoughts of your mind. You see the humility of this man. He, he's so crystal clear on reality. He just has this clear sense of who he is and who God is. He says, I, I can't really help you. In fact, all the magicians, the enchanters, the wise men, they can't help you either. But, but, there is this God in heaven. And not only is he able to help you, but he will help you. You see, he shows Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar, what you need right now is rescue from these sleepless nights. You need some help. You can't help yourself. But there is a God in heaven who has mercifully condescended to help you. Daniel knows he's a servant. He knows he's an instrument in God's hands. He says, I'm here to do what God has equipped me to do. There's nothing in me in and of itself that makes me better than all these other people. But God's chosen to use me. In verse 30, it's just this, this direct statement of humble dependence. This mystery has been revealed to me. See, all I know, I only know because God has opened up my eyes to see it. Remember the meaning of Daniel's name? What does Daniel mean? It means my judge is God. I believe that's one of the reasons that Daniel was able to stand confidently and courageously before this king because he knew that ultimately his well-being was not in the hands of this king. He knew that ultimately he was a servant, a humble servant of the true and living God. He is my judge. He will judge me, not you. Ultimately, he doesn't need to answer to Nebuchadnezzar. Yes, he is a servant of the king and he wants to serve the king well. But ultimately, he knows that he is God's servant. And that changes everything. There's this calmness about Daniel throughout this story that strikes me. He just seems so settled. Even when he hears about the fact that the king is going to kill everyone if they can't tell him the meaning of his dream, what does Daniel do? He just asks the question. He says, why is this decree so urgent? I love that. It sounds so calm. He just asks a question. Such a great way to approach someone who's losing it, like the king. Why is this decree so urgent? The, the Bible tells us in verse 14 that he speaks with prudence and discretion. There, there's a tornado going on around him, and yet he's able to remain peacefully anchored, grounded. It reminds me of Psalm 131, verse 2, where it says, the psalmist says, But I have calmed and quieted my soul, like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child, my soul is my soul within me. There's this quiet. He's like a child who's, been, who, who's comfortably in the arms of his mother. It's not, it's not, it's not crying out for what he needs. It's not, it's not completely unsettled and fearful. Instead, it's calm. I believe Daniel here stands as a picture of how we're meant to live in exile. We are meant to live as servants of God, humble servants of God, right here, right now. And this is one of the ways that we're meant to be different from the people around us. I know we're more than just servants of God. If, we are, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ and you are a child of God, much more than a servant, but you're not less than a servant. You are beloved and accepted as a child, but you're not less than a servant. That is, you answer to him ultimately and no one else. And so you're called to be dependent on him, humble and meek, and yet confident in our God. And that's what we see in Daniel. And this is the way we're called to live in this world. Humble and meek, and yet confident in our God. Finding strength in community and prayer so that when trouble comes, we're driven to the people of God, our brothers and sisters, to pray with them and bear each other's burdens together and to live with the spirit of worship and adoration that we see in Daniel. This is how we are called to live in exile. What an example 
What a picture. Daniel looks powerless in this story until you realize that he has access to the God who reigns over all. We find that he's not powerless at all. In fact, he's the one who is able to rescue and change this dire situation because God is with him. There's a truth here that I think we need to see, and it's this. Knowing God and knowing who we are before God prepares us for tragedy and for trouble. Knowing God and knowing who we are before God prepares us for tragedy and trouble. The fact is that trouble is going to come our way, and tragedy will come into our lives. If you're not in the midst of it now, you will be soon enough. We never know if it's going to be tomorrow or when the day will come, but at some point, it may very well be that the bottom will drop out from under us, as it had for Daniel. And we do best to prepare ourselves for those days by knowing who God is and knowing who we are as his people before him. We do best to know who God is now and know who we are as his people before him now before the trouble comes. That's what Daniel did. He was anchored and grounded so when the waves came, when the fire came, he was able to survive. Notice how when this trouble comes, Daniel doesn't fold in on himself. He doesn't isolate himself. He doesn't look at everyone else as an enemy. That's what King Nebuchadnezzar does, right? Trouble comes, he isolates himself. Everyone becomes them, and, and I just have to look out for myself. You are all against me. I need to find a way out of this problem. Daniel does the opposite. He shows concern for the needs of others. He wants to not just save his own skin. He wants to save the skin of all these other wise men, too. He's able to serve their good. He's able to serve the king and serve the kingdom, the nation where he lives. What an example for us. We do well to walk in Daniel's shoes in this way, to walk in, in, in his footsteps, I should say. But sadly, if we're going to be honest, we'd have to say that we're not often like Daniel here. So often we are much more like Nebuchadnezzar. Are you ever like Nebuchadnezzar when trouble comes? When, 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 when worry and pain and trouble come into your life, what's your response? Do you sometimes just instinctively grow anxious and sleepless and desperate? Do you ever isolate yourself from community? Do you ever withhold yourself from prayer and say, there's no point in going to God and praying. I need to get alone and, and just kind of find a way out of this problem. There's no help in going to share this with others. I don't need others' help. What I need more than anything is just to fight my way out of this. We isolate ourselves. Others become hindrances to us or enemies to us. And so in isolation, we start to blame others for our trouble. We say, leave me alone. Our strategies might look different from Nebuchadnezzar's. Maybe they look the same. Maybe they look different. Maybe for some of us, we try to escape the problems that we're in by distracting ourselves from them, self-medicating, abusing substances, abusing things or using things or doing things we shouldn't just to distract ourselves from our trouble. Maybe that's where you're at. I'm sure Nebuchadnezzar probably tried that too. Or maybe you turn on others. You start to blame them. You start to make demands. You better fix this. You got me into this problem. Whether it's a friend or a relative, it's someone in your family, it's your parents, someone, a superior, you're like, you need to fix this. Just like Nebuchadnezzar did. And if you don't, you're going to pay for it. Are those your strategies for dealing with trouble when they come? And what does this reveal about us? It reveals that we don't know God in ourselves as we need to. We haven't prepared ourselves for the day of trouble by knowing God and by knowing who we are before him. 
And so rather than being, rather than, than walking into our troubles with a humble resolve and a confidence in our God, instead we just get overwhelmed and angry and desperate. And here's a humbling truth. The fact is that trouble often has a way of showing us what's already going on in our hearts. When trouble comes around, it reveals to us something of what's already been going on in our hearts and heads. Too often, we're like Nebuchadnezzar. Before the trouble came, we were, we were like him, consumed with our own goals. Like this king, consumed with our own accomplishments. Consumed with what we have and getting more of it. That's him, isn't it? But, but isn't that us as well? Consumed with what we want and getting more of it and getting and building our little kingdoms, just like he was building his much bigger kingdom. Like Nebuchadnezzar, we want to be acknowledged, we want to be honored, we want to be worshipped even. We want to be respected for what we've done and we want to be loved and feared. And when things don't go our way and we're not getting what we want, we start to get so anxious and troubled because our kingdom is being threatened. This kingdom that we've been spending so much time and effort to build. And so there's anxiety, and anxiety leads to anger and lashing out and shifting blame. Have you ever grown angry at someone when they get in the way of you accomplishing what you want to accomplish? Have you ever gotten angry at someone because they're not fixing the problem that you're in? We start flailing just like Nebuchadnezzar did. Desperate and unhinged. God knows this. He speaks to us in this tendency. He speaks to his people like in places like Hosea chapter 7. Let me read this to you. Hosea chapter 7, verse 14. This is God speaking about his people. He says, they do not cry to me from the heart. They're in trouble. They are in deep trouble, but they do not cry to me from the heart. But they wail upon their beds. For grain and wine, they gash themselves. They cut themselves. They rebel against me. What is he saying? He's saying, my people, when you're in trouble, instead of crying out to me, instead of crying out to me, you just lay in your beds and you cry. And you flail. And you wail. And you look to other things to help you. This is what this is talking about. The false gods, these, these pagan gods, people would cut themselves in order to prove their devotion, to prove their faithfulness to these gods in the hope that if I cut myself, if I hurt myself, these false gods will help me and come and rescue me. So he says you look to false gods and you do whatever you can to get their help. It's like you're looking everywhere possible, but you won't look to me for the help that you need. Sit with this for just a moment. How do you respond to trouble and grief? Do you respond like Hosea 7.14? You see, God isn't coming to us in our trouble and saying, stop crying. No, he's saying, cry out to me and I will hear you. If you're grieving, grieve to me. If you're suffering, if you're worried, if you're fearful, just bring it to me. Don't, he's not saying stop all the complaining. He's saying complain to me. Lament to me. Stop rolling around on your bed as if you're all alone and there's no one to help. There's a God in heaven who's willing and able to rescue. And so he lovingly cries out to you and says, come to me. And what kind of God is this God? We saw in this, in this prayer of Daniel that he's a mighty God. He's a God who reveals mysteries. He's a God who gives and takes away. He is an infinite God. But I think this story tells us one more thing about this God that we'll see before we close. It's simply this. The God of heaven who calls us to bring all of our troubles to him, yes, he is an infinite God. There's no doubt. He is also a humble servant. You see, the God we worship brings character two and character three together. He is an infinite God, and he is also a humble servant. He is Yahweh, the great I am, 
He is also Emmanuel, God with us, who draws near to serve us. You see, God, some of us have this false view of God. We think that somehow he's the unhinged dictator up there, who when we let him down is is this far away from freaking out on us and laying down the hammer on us. He's rash, he's temperamental, I better better appease him. And if I screw up, I better get away from him. Don't go to him in prayer, don't go towards community. If I screw up, the last thing I should be doing is moving towards community and prayer. I should be hiding myself from him because his expectations are so high. This God, he's a kind of loose cannon. We think that the God of the Bible is somehow like Nebuchadnezzar. (laughs) He's not. He is the infinite God and he is the humble servant. In Jesus Christ, the infinite God and the humble servant come together. Like Jesus, like Daniel, Jesus was willing to stand before rulers with confidence and with meekness, and he rescues his people by putting himself on the line. He gives up his life, and he picks it back up again, and he proves himself to be the powerful one, greater than any earthly ruler. In the words of Matthew 20, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, Jesus Christ came not to be served, not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. In Jesus, we see both the infinite God and the humble servant. And this story is a reminder to us of who he is and who we are. No, we are not God, not even little g God. But we have a God who has promised to walk with us to care for us. And he has given us his spirit so that we don't need to live like Nebuchadnezzar. Even when we're in the midst of what feels like a bad dream, even in the midst of a nightmare, we don't need to live like Nebuchadnezzar, although we're so often prone to. Instead, we can live lives of humble resolve and peaceful, worshipful gratitude. Blessed be the name of God forever and ever. We worship you, our mighty God, and we praise you as the infinite one, transcendent. You stand outside of time and history, and yet, Lord, you are also the humble servant who came and dwelt near to us, stepped in close in order to rescue us. We are your people. Help us to live as your people as we we walk through life here in exile. And help us to know that you will never leave us or forsake us. And one day, you will bring us to be with you eternally. In Christ's name.